You are listening to Mike Seminary and Friends, a Q1 Network production. I've been on this planet 68 years, and I I don't know that I've heard more barking, even biting now, when it comes to subject matter in our country, because so many subjects have become so partisan, and as a result of partisan discussions and opinions, we have this incredibly divided country where it's hard to have straightforward sit down over coffee, talk about stuff that's important, how can we together fix it? And so, so I'm going to start this series, actually two of them, on what North Dakota's doing in the ag space and natural resource, oil, coal, all of that. Because in my opinion, we're doing most of these really well and doing them right, and there's some reasons for that. And today, I'm so lucky, speaking of reasons for that, Great leadership and people that are great listeners have servants' hearts. They want to make a difference. And that's why some people get involved in public policy. I'm so blessed to have, as my guest this morning, the 38th Lieutenant Governor for the great state of North Dakota, and my friend, by the way, Lieutenant Governor Brent Sanford. Lieutenant Governor, it's great to see you. Thanks for taking time to join me. How are you this morning? I'm doing great, Mike. Thanks for the invite. Former mayors have to stick together, so I appreciate the invite. <laughs> yeah, we do, and I think there a lot of our backgrounds are so similar, and we'll talk about some of that. Before I get on to this stuff, how are Sandy and the kids, new school year, everything's going well? Oh, yes. Yep. The, the two that are still in K-12, they're doing great, you know, back in school in Bismarck, and, and they've been in the schools here for three years, so... So they've got those friends and they've got the activities. It's just getting back back on the carousel. But my oldest has decided to jump into to graduate school. So she's so so she's in the process of acclimating to Phoenix and, and going for masters in business down at, at Arizona State. And so that that's been more of the challenge. And we haven't been worrying about her for a while. So, so uh, it's like the, the two little ones are fine now, and the oldest needs a little TLC. So it's there's always something parent. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Well, that, you know, the good news is, is that those trips to spend time with her and do some mentoring in late December, January, February, March, that will be, I think, really good for you and Sandy, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Looking forward to that. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully it's not just all kind and all calm and doesn't need any help in, in January and February. <laughs> Well, Lieutenant Governor, let's talk a little bit first about your background to get us teed up to the the things I want to dig into with regards to your roles and responsibilities as Lieutenant Governor. You you grew up in Watford City and left for the big city of Grand Forks for college. You went to UND and got your, uh, eventually got your accounting degree, became a CPA, correct? Correct. And then worked at Ide Bailey in Fargo before heading off to, to Denver. And I want to pause there. 
leaving Watford City, going to Grand Forks, graduating for a wonderful, wonderful school up in Grand Forks, UND, and then working for one of the finest CPA consulting firms, and they're, they're so diverse nowadays, in the upper, upper Great Plains, Ide Bailey. What, what did you learn in Fargo at Ide Bailey that helped you get teed up for what you eventually did at TransWest Trucks in Colorado? Yeah, so step back. What I what I told my dad, what I learned at UND in, in the four years of business school and accounting school and then getting my CPA right away was learned how much I don't know. And so, I, I mean, that was that was what, to me, higher ed was just so just broadening your mind and, and, and finding out all those areas and things in life that you still got a lot of work to do of learning what's happening there, other parts of the world, other other types of economies, other types of industries. And so then getting a job with Ide Bailey really became a blessing where I was more pragmatic at the time as you are when you're 22 years old. I know that with having one now, I mean, you're, you're worried about what's tomorrow. What's, I need a job, you know, I, I got a degree. So, and then you spend about two seconds celebrating that and I need a job. And, and turns out working at an accounting firm was, was fabulous as far as experience of seeing different industries, different communities, different types of ways to run an organization, good and bad, and, and, and finding out, you know, these, these entrepreneurs, these local entrepreneurs in Fargo and North Dakota and Western Minnesota, what, you know, what they built these companies into and, and trying to learn, glean positive, you know, positive points from all of those different organizations. And it became, you know, apparent to me quick, very early on that I would say to, to the partners, I don't know how I can be a consultant. I don't know anything yet. I'm 24, 25 years old. You know, you know, we need what you can do with financial modeling. With you, listen to the business concept and understand, you know, what they want to do, and then you put it into a spreadsheet and crank out those forecasts of financial statements. That's your job in this. But I, but I would say I haven't been there. I don't have that real world world experience. So so it's something where I joke all the time. I was I would in my 20s. I just wished I was 40. I just wished I would be 40 and people would listen to me and I'd have all this experience. But before I got to age 40, we were in, took a transfer to Phoenix with Ide Bailey and then, and then took, a, you know, took a jump to leave Ide Bailey, and that was a hard decision, and go to uh, TransWest, which is a, a company owned by another UND graduate and, and um, North Dakota native. And, and he hired a lot of North Dakota people. And this is a company with 500 employees and, and you know, a lot of different activities, manufacturing and real estate and leasing and automobiles and trucks and over-the-road trailers and construction equipment, very diverse company. And so I, you know, at right, right around that age 30, I was chief financial officer for a company of, that had that much going on. And it was another just great, you know, be able to focus on one company and one set of activities. And, and, and it was another, you know, learning curve again on a straight up climb. And it was, it was great experience great experience you know we had one child at the time and sandy and i were you know we enjoyed living in denver you know but we had that eye back towards north dakota and so that's kind of that's kind of where the story where we usually pick up in our story is when we did move then in 2004 you uh, go back to watford city get involved in the automobile business a fam family business at the time and it didn't take very long to get involved in public policy, public service, and I call it really serving. What happened 
that caused you to, in such a short period of time, throw your hat in the ring and get involved in local politics? Well, two things. It was part of the Part of the question we had of living in Denver was how in the world do you even get on a school board when you don't know anyone and you're in the middle of three million people and you don't know anyone? And whereas coming from West North Dakota, we both both saw that it's something where if you desire to serve, it's kind of a, here, you know, go for it, put your name on the ballot type of deal. And in my, you know, so access to even being able to serve seemed like a quagmire living in, the, in those metro areas when you're, when you're just one person in the middle of three million. But then my grandfather had been the mayor of Watford City for 19 years and on city council for 26, I believe. And my dad had been on city council for eight years. And and my my maternal grandfather was like the informal mayor of Keene, as some people like to say, <laughs> had his shop in the union that was the blacksmith shop that became a mechanic shop on, on the street, on the, the corner when you come into town off of Highway 23 into Keene, North Dakota. And uh, which became the beginning of the oil boom in the 50s for McKinsey County, by the way. But anyway, my my grandfathers were people that served, you know, besides working hard, working all day long in their business. And so and so it it, it felt like, you know, well, I'd be able to have that opportunity someday. But but I, I certainly didn't expect to jump into it so soon, only living there for a year and then having people saying, you've got to get on city council. We need to get some of these things straightened out moving the right direction there's actually activity happening again you know people the houses aren't aren't sitting there vacant and worth seven thousand dollars anymore there's people actually buying the homes moving back there's some oil activity that's happening in in richland county and or i mean in in yeah in in the in montana over by sydney montana fairview montana you know not much oil activity yet in in new oil activity in mckenzie but things were starting to move so i jumped on the city council and in that First term from 2006 to 2010, it was it was a pretty sleepy small town that was that had ambitions to grow and had some great leaders like Gene Veter, who I know you know as economic developer and great attitude. I came home and he said, "Welcome back home. You get to work harder than you ever did and make less money, but you get to be home." <laughs> and, and Main Street had was more buildings were empty than full when I, when, I, when we started back there. Um, but you had Gene's optimism. You had you had City Council's optimism. You had that solid county commission that they always have, and and um, you know. So we, we we started moving, and then and then as that those those first five years living home, we ended up having uh, two babies, Nicholas and Aaron, came along, and 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 business was growing like crazy. I I had budgeted for like twelve vehicle sales in one month in the end of two thousand nine we had like fifty four and I wasn't able to hire salesmen so it was a very busy time business wise and city council was getting busier. The oil activity was really going strong north of the river we said, you know, in that, that Stanley area in into Williston. Mine it looked like it was gonna take a lot of benefit of, of the oil activity, so did Dickinson. And you know, we just were waiting. You know, we were waiting. When's this going to come back? Our school enrollment had gone from six or seven hundred in the early two thousands to five hundred and forty kids at the end of in like two thousand nine ish era. Um, superintendent Steve Holland, one of the, slow, the youngest superintendents in the state, he was he was the leader of the school at that time, looking at closing schools. Hmm. Then the rigs came in. Then the then the rigs and the activity came in, and I was looking at getting off of city council just to handle being now a father of three. Busy husband, busy father, busy business owner, and and I just looked in the mirror and thought, you know what? 
with my financial background, I can get this. I get the infrastructure needs. Our consulting engineer said you'll need an you'll need to design an infrastructure plan completely around this city, or you'll be overtaken by temporary temporary trailers and temporary parking lots for trucks and rigs and and man camp units. And and so we did that. We jumped into an infrastructure plan. All of a sudden, you're looking at hundreds of millions of investment. Besides the fact of needing new hospitals and schools and all of those types of Things and so I threw my name in the hat to run for mayor in the in the summer of 2010. So Gene Veter was right. Welcome back. You're going to work harder and work for less, and that's exactly what what you and Sandy were doing with the, with the new family. I, I got to go back to something you said, Lieutenant Governor, that I'm going to challenge folks that listen to this to do a little research. I think you said your grandfather was blacksmith and then he became his blacksmith business became mechanic shop for folks that don't understand or that's a rude way of saying it that might not be aware at one time the most important business bar none in almost any rural setting was the blacksmith um for so many reasons it was if 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 you used horses to draw, uh, pull your equipment on the farm or whatever it was, and they threw a shoe, whatever it was, you went to the blacksmith more times than not. Sometimes you might have been able to do it yourself, but the blacksmith was the person that kept enterprise moving in those cities, and then he becomes uh, probably the main mechanic in the county too. That's that's pretty fascinating, neat story, and a mayor. So. You just got yeah, along. He that. wasn't not the official mayor. They were a village, but people <laughs> teased him because he was the one that would lead the if the charge if there's a fire. And he's the he was the central gathering point for coffee. And he was if there was somebody acting up, he was the one enforcing. So yeah, so my grandpa Les was was quite the guy for Keen. And and yes, the blacksmith was a center of the community. The, the the plowshares pounding them back into place and sharpening and all. I mean, it was so important. And so he was a service provider. And he worked all daylight hours. And my mom, my mom said, if you'd go to visit your, my dad, I'd have to go lay under the, the tractor with him or lay under the truck with him. And that's that's when, and bring him his food. And he'd be, he'd lay down there and talk to you while he was fixing, you know. And that, that's so that's the kind of folks I came from. Well, then you get another opportunity to take your your serving the public to a, a bigger level, a different stage, and that's serving the entire state as lieutenant governor you uh, uh, form a wonderful relationship with governor Burgum and you you win and you guys win again you got elected and you got reelected before i get into some of your roles and responsibilities just give us kind of a glimpse of how that decision to serve on a bigger stage changes the life of a family in Watford City where you're at home. Granted, people that didn't experience what the oil boom was like, and we still have it, but back in those days, the frenetic, hectic pace that was painstaking for a lot of folks, and thanks to people like you, you helped give us balance and perspective. But how did how did your life change when you went to the that next level, Lieutenant Governor? Well, I went from being the mayor and the car dealer with 
the biggest shop in Wofford City. So kind of that modern day blacksmith, right? The, a place where most people would find their way. And, you know, I always said running for mayor, you, you, you know where I'm at, you know, and it was very, very tied to that, to the building, to the business, to the, the meetings, you know, for city council. And, and then, you know, with the sporting events and with the kids activities, very tied to the community. And all of a sudden that's gone. And, and, um, my business was in a transition. I was in the business. I was in the process of selling my shop to the shop foreman. And, um, you know, so the business part was in a transition anyway, actually, but, but the family part that wasn't, you know, so, and so, um, my oldest wasn't graduating until 2019. So I commuted for two and a half years, had a, had a rental home in Bismarck. And, and I was very proud that I only missed one of her basketball or volleyball games her senior year. And it was a game in up in Williston. And it was because I couldn't get out of session to drive to Williston, but otherwise I would drive after session. Sender Dwyer, Sender Mike Dwyer, his son was the coach for Watford City, so we'd get in the car and drive, you know. So I was able to to be a dad and be there and be present. And and my youngest, Erin, um, she was five when when um, when when Doug and I were elected. And and, and she, when she would tell me when they lived in Watford City, she'd say, "Dad, I think you sleep here more than you sleep in Bismarck." So I feel good about that. So her perception <laughs> was pretty good, you know, even if it was, you know, probably three nights, you know, I was there two nights, but, but so I was able to balance that, I guess, you know, so it was quite a change. And, but the focus on a daily basis, I was ready for that, but the focus is all of a sudden statewide and not just on that upper Northwest where the Bakken is running over our communities and we're trying to stay alive and welcome in these new people and have the infrastructure and have the community facilities needed. And just, it was busy, 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 you know, for, and very much focused on, that upper northwest part of the state to being focused statewide, and it's not that hard because because North Dakota there's only eight hundred thousand of us, and it's very rural, and we're agriculture and energy, and and with with a little bit of technology related to that swirled around it, and and teachers and hospital and service workers and government workers, and, and it's you know very similar types of folks, you know, and and so so that part isn't difficult. It. What's interesting is how how hard it is to try to bring the whole state together on on what they'll support, and and I love those challenges. I mean, it, you know, we had a recent one in this last special session of bringing natural gas to the eastern part of the state, and to me, it's like this is the easiest thing ever. We need these natural gas projects to be able to move on the eastern part of the state. If you're gonna do value added ag, they look for the natural gas. They not only need water and labor and and the feedstocks from the egg side, but they need, where's your natural gas? We can't build a plant without plentiful natural gas. Well, ironically, that's over in the western part of the state where the agricultural commodities aren't as strong, you know? So so if we build our own pipe, instead of relying on the Canadian pipes that take gas from Alberta down to Chicago, and we just, they clip the corner of our state and don't think about getting gas to Grand Forks, Mayville, Devil's Lake, Rugby, those areas, Harvey, Botano, I mean, then if we can take advantage and build our own, shouldn't that be an easy sell? Well, it should be, but as you know, Mike, it's it's not necessarily. But to get, <laughs> find out that folks that are most against it maybe are ones that should be for it is always interesting. But I, I take that as a challenge. I think it's fun to be able to just dialogue through it, get people to meet and see how they actually are on the same page and there's actually synergy to get something done. And, and there was widespread support to, to move a project like that. And it takes government. I'm a very free market, very business type focused person. I'd, I'd like less government if possible, 
less regulation as possible. But there's things that I, I say, there's things government has to do, like building a water tower and building highways. In this case, it's, it's getting involved in the transmission of natural gas straight across the state from west to east. And that helps our oil industry have another outlet for the gas so that they don't have to go to flare if there's not enough room on the Canadian pipelines. And it helps the egg industry if you have that opportunity to add value right here and, and add that tax base right here in those those jobs and in, in communities that are agricultural based. You know, so so I was ready for the statewide. I love it. Legislative session. I'm one of those people that I enjoy the heck out of legislative session and seeing how it all all the gives and takes and and, and how it all works out and how the compromise works and uh, you know. But it's it's a challenge and. State government itself is such a challenge. The governor's office has, you know, very short staff. So it wasn't that much different leaving Watford City where, you know, I didn't have a staff there. Um, our police department had to grow from four to 16 while I was there. Our sheriff's department went from four to over 20 while I was there. Now they're far more than that number even. I mean, the growth was was incredible. But, you know, so you come to the governor's office, we have like 16 staff. I mean, it's something where you've got to rely on your network of leaders in the cabinet and stakeholders from outside government and and other you know the pseudo government type agencies that aren't direct cabinet agencies and any other elected offices I mean, you've got to have a network of, of trusted folks that that you're all that you get on the same page on on different issues and you're not all on the same page on every issue so that's the other thing to remember is you might have an advocate on one bill that and the person that's against you on that bill that might switch for the next concept, for the next bill, and so, you just, but you can't be offended by those things, you know. So I'd, I'd been coming to legislative session for a long time, and as a mayor, coming down and saying, "Hey, what's good for us is good for you." If we have infrastructure for the West with some of that oil and gas severance tax that's generated, then we can generate more for your projects, for water projects in the East, for K-12 education funding, so that we can reduce the property tax burden. That. More activity on the West, more infrastructure, more ability to have employees there brings more revenue to the state. So I, I'd kind of been preaching that for a while before the current job. Oh, thanks for sharing that information, Lieutenant Governor. Two things before I move on to another question. You made a comment about, you know, the very people that she, and I'm paraphrasing how you said it, the very people that should be for something would be against it. My experience, and especially when I look to the East, when I'm saying the East, I'm talking about Washington, D.C., because it seems to be more prolific there. My perception is that sometimes people are against something because they don't have all the facts. And it's hard for you to be supportive of something if you're ignorant to the facts. And I'm not saying you're dumb. If you're ignorant to the facts, it's really easy for you to, you know, stand your ground, even dig your heels in and say no. Uh, but the challenge sometimes is will the people be open to getting the facts, to have the right information so they at least can adequately evaluate what's in front of them. The, the other thing I wanted to say, I'm not going to put these words in your mouth, but I can say this from having years of a similar experience where I spent so much time in a car 
primarily for my profession of driving from Bismarck to Fargo or Bismarck to Billings or Bismarck to Denver, Bismarck to Grand Forks, Bismarck to Watford City. I have been supportive of autonomous transportation for the longest time because when when you are in a car so much, especially in North Dakota, it seems like a no-brainer. Why wouldn't we have a vehicle that can handle this responsibility and I can do something else? Not that you're totally oblivious to what's going on, but I have been an advocate and a supporter of autonomous transportation for a long time because of the same experience that, that you have. Well, let's start talking more directly about uh, energy and the role that I believe North Dakota has not just in the region, region, but across the, this great country, and maybe even being an example and a beacon of light globally when it comes to how do we handle this transition that so many people uh, desire, I think most people do, how do, to get to as clean a source of um, energy production as possible. You, you sit on uh, the Empower Commission, ex-official member, I believe. I don't know that a lot of people understand that the Empower Commission um, and the Clean Sustainable Energy Authority are connected. The Power Commission was started really in 2007 about how to handle our resources. Clean Sustainable Energy Authority was established by legislature in the 2021 legislature. And uh, you have an Empower meeting, uh, Great Plains Empower meeting coming up October 10th, I believe, in Bismarck. Before I go into any more details, sh share with me as your as your role in both of these, how you believe North Dakota can be continue to be a great example of how to balance the priorities that so many uh, so so many of us are expecting out of decision makers. Yeah. So so Empower to me has been the place where where all the decision makers, those entities, are convening and. I don't know how I don't know how I would have some of the relationships that have been so important the last four the last six years without Empower. Frankly, when you think about challenges like Coal Creek, of what was going to happen with that, the trans, transition of that plant, if we hadn't have been meeting with Empower every month or so and having those relationships, I mean, it, it'd be it'd be difficult for the governor's office to be to know what you're supposed to do, and how you could even help and who the players are that, that might be part of a process like that. So, so for convening the industry, it's incredibly important. And it's, it's um, very utility heavy. You know, it's the utilities that are, bring, that are providing power. It's, it's coal generated, uh, it's, it's coal companies, it's oil and gas companies, um, it's midstream companies with the natural gas um, and the pipelining. Um, it's and then it's biofuels, you know. So you've got ethanol industries represented, and you have petroleum distributors represented. So, so the group, and and also renewable companies represented. So you can you can tell right there that you don't have agreement um, among all the parties on any one thing. So we don't really at Empower come up with thou shalt do this and the state needs to do this. It's more about 
you know, working through, vetting through what types of things wouldn't get, aren't going to get run over if you bring up one that is so detrimental to another industry. And so, for instance, they, they talk about the, the ethanol battles years ago when ethanol was just fighting for some market share and to have to be able to have some requirement that ethanol be blended with the gasoline. And, and so the, those industries were, were like this. And um, now today you have, you have a in, in, more interesting dynamic where they're actually on similar footing as far as CO2, sequestration and reduction, um, liquid fuels in vehicles and reducing the amount of emissions as you have the, the, the increasing electric vehicles coming on, on board. So, so they might be more aligned than they used to. But, um, you know, we also have seen wind and coal companies and utilities coming together because they need to they need to be able to balance the load but still take advantage of the desire from the, the buyer and from the government for the renewables growth. So so within that room you have the ability to have the players that can collaborate when it comes down to it. But one of the most fruitful things to come out of that room I would say is the Clean Sustainable Energy Authority and that that was created as a response to ESG and it was similar to what we saw back in the, in the oil boom days of perception of Western North Dakota, perception of Watford City was so bad that it was a rough, tough, tough not even cowboy town anymore, but a, a you know, an you know, a, a oil worker was in a negative connotation and it was just a dirty oil field town type connotation. And, and Gene Veter and his daughter, Jesse, and us on city council and county commission put together a PR campaign about, this is what it's actually like, don't be afraid to send your daughter here to make more money at our school than the other beginning teaching jobs in a brand new apartment that we put together at Wolf Run Village with a brand new daycare beside that we put together with a new Rough Rider Center for community events and brand new hospital. This is a growing community that's welcoming to new families and it's safe. And, you know, if you heard of any, you know, you debunk the rumors of increased crime, that was usually, you know, in the man camps, in the bars themselves, of the you know, frustrated guys that didn't have their families around. And so, Getting families there was so important. So the same thing is needed for energy industry today. Of we aren't this dirty industry. Our energy industry is so responsible. If you're out on, I was just out on a well site, and the safety, the safety procedures are almost annoying. Of how you got to park the pickups backwards, and everybody has to have their FR on and their safety glasses and their hat. And then you know we have 15 people here in before we go in. I mean, it's so safety focused to the point of they, they don't want they want to have zero inju- injuries. They know. That they've that they they want to not only have zero emission they want to have zero industries because of the negative focus on their industry and so clean sustainable energy authority was an empower commission led idea from i would say david straley ron nest annette welsh i mean the group that started looking at esg they came up with how about we talk about what we do and what we actually do versus the perception and then put some funding together to help commercialize this great research and development that we do because as you know, Mike, we don't have an energy department. Some states actually do. We don't have a secretary of energy or an energy department. We have the industrial commission, which is governor, attorney general, and and and, and a commissioner, of course, and they oversee the research councils in renewables and oil and gas and in lignite. And so Clean Sustainable Energy Authority was conceived as let's let's come up with ways for commercializing that research and that innovation on any technology that reduces emissions was basically how they put it. That's, that was the legislators' words, reducing emissions, reducing pollution. And so we've seen um, frac water 
produce water solutions to bring the brine out of it and reuse the water. We've seen we've seen um, projects come to the Clean Sustainable Energy Authority on removing CO2 from the on-site generation from the, the diesel generators on site, um, figuring out how much of their carbon footprint that actually represents. Um, two, the large-scale um, coal plant carbon capture projects like Project Tundra and and the project at, at Coal Creek now um, to actually sequester the CO2 and, and keep those plants moving into the future with CO2-free, um, reliable, dispatchable electrons, which is so important to our grid today. So we're seeing all these great projects now. The legislature bought in right away $250 million of loan or loan guarantee and $25 million of grants, and then they added $20 million more for hydrogen in the special session. A lot of exciting things happening in sustainable aviation fuel hydrogen, all these, the new technologies with this new administration, there's so much focus on that. And the investors are finding North Dakota, they've got that clean, sustainable energy authority. They're serious about this. They're (laughs) business friendly. You know, they're, they're not just, you know, dumb farmers. They're not just dirty oil guys. No, they actually think about this. They're very intentional about cleanest barrel of oil anywhere. You know, the, you know, the number one, number two in all these commodities and best producers that we have on the ag side, and we're going to innovate forward. And, you know, we, we want to be able to add value to it here. We're proud of our ethanol plants, and now our two soybean renewable diesel plants underway, you know. And it's it's exciting, and Clean Sustainable Energy Authority was a catalyst for it, and we'll see what it does going forward. There's tremendous funding that's necessitated from from what comes through that, that commission, and and we'll see what kind of support we have um, through the governor's budgeting this next time and, and then into the legislative session. But it's exciting. I can talk all day on energy, Mike. You know that. And But but finding how they all come together is the, is the fascinating part and, and, and seeing how we can lead the way for this nation and feeding and fueling the nation and the world and, and in a very clean environment as far as reducing emissions on our own because it makes sense to do it. We need the CO2 for enhanced oil recovery, which is a whole other episode. Of, of how you can end up with a carbon negative barrel of oil. But I mean, all of this can work together for good for mankind and, and the leadership can come right here out of North Dakota. So it's, it's a fascinating time to be in, in leadership. You know what I love about what you just shared, Lieutenant Governor, is that this approach, unlike another approach where somebody's treating the fossil fuel energy like a light switch, you go over here and turn that switch off. And then you you put all of these regulations and policies in place immediately. And then you elevate the taxation. All of a sudden, what you've just done is you've stopped a machine for all practical purposes. And and then what, what you're doing is you're creating departments and new jobs to oversee something that probably doesn't have to be overseen the way you think. If if you take a moment to look at what North Dakota was doing, for example, and for so everybody understands here, North Dakota has an 800-year supply of lignite coal under its ground. That, that's the largest lignite coal deposit in the world. We have, six, I think, over 16,000 producing oil wells 
right now. Somewhere between 40 and 50 rigs that are, get, that are getting us new oil well. And by the way, why do we have that? Because there's such a great need and demand for what's in a barrel of oil. Not so much because of the gas that you put into your car, but all the other things that we use on a daily basis, about 6,000 of them, that require some kind of a petroleum base to it. And then we have ag, we have wind, we have biofuels, we have ethanol. We literally have, and we have water, we, we literally have the perfect Petri dish that the whole world is trying to figure out a way to address in terms of how it could better serve all of us, right? Well, North Dakota is doing that through leadership, conversation, discussion, and then the legislature says, okay, um, boy, we've been doing really well after we established the Empower Commission in 2007. We still are a leader, I think, I, I think the second, maybe the third now, uh, largest producing oil state in the country, which makes us one of the largest producing states in the world, for that matter. We start coal. We have all of these assets. Then we go to the legislature, and they say, how can we do a better job of addressing the concerns and conversations that so many of us have? So they established the Clean Sustainable Energy Authority which you sit on as well, if not chairing, I'm not sure. Um, yeah, I chair it. And you chaired, and thank you for that. And the, the, can I just read the purpose of that, by the way? Because if people yeah. haven't heard about this, this might get your attention. Here's the purpose. To support research development and technological advancements through partnerships and financial support for large-scale development and commercialization of projects, processes, activities, and technologies that reduce environmental impacts and increase sustainability of energy production and delivery. Who, who could argue that that isn't probably the perfect purpose for all of these side conversations and barking that we have going on with regards to hydrocarbons and fossil fuels. So as you, as you meet on a regular basis, what happens is people come to you and say, here's our idea, here's what our plan is, here's what our mission is, and they talk about the possibility of a, of a grant or a loan. So what's that process like, Lieutenant Governor, when they come to you? So... So when the bill was coming together, I was an advocate for saying, let's make sure that the Industrial Commission has authority over this because we know Carlene Fine will put together a wonderful program. And she did. Um, asked Al Anderson, former Commerce Commissioner, to come out of retirement. And so he's the, he's the executive director of Clean Sustainable. And, and, the, in, and then the legislation put together two levels of boards, a, a voting um, authority board that, that, I, that I chair, and, and then a, a technical reviewer board. And I also chair those meetings. But the technical reviewer board is, is people that, you know, work within transmission of pipeline and electricity and natural gas and um, Lynn Helmstrom Departmental Resources and, you know, the um, um, research councils. I mean, the, the, the technical reviewers look at these 
things for feasibility purposes, and they also hire an independent expert to take a look at the project. And so they're very well vetted through that process, and then and then a scoring system is is brought to the voting members. And so then then we will have a second group of meetings with a with a binder with with all these projects and not necessarily recommendations, but scoring on each one of them in different areas. And and the group um, was. Um, two from Renewable Council, two from Lignite Council, and two from Oil and Gas Council was what was required from the legislation as far as the voting members. So, so you have a very you have a very balanced and even dialogue, I would say. And and so, um, so it, it, these things are well vetted by the time they come through, and you never have enough time to, to iron out all the all the issues on projects when you're in, at that early development stage, especially if it's a beginning stage company, but. But I'm very pleased with the types of projects that have been funded through there. Lieutenant Governor, I, I, I believe that the carbon neutral goal by 2030 may be one of the most significant goals that, that our state could have in, in terms of our role and responsibilities when it comes to hydrocarbons, fossil fuels, natural resources. When I first heard the, the governor uh, make that declaration, it, to me it was not unlike when um, his name was Jim Cramer. They used to have the Cudlow Cramer, Cramer Cudlow Show, whatever that was, so, so many years ago. When he came to North Dakota, I believe he was in a helicopter with then Governor Dalrymple, and they were talking about the Bakken and how significant that was. And the conversation was about independence, uh, security, and just how massive this oil play was that was in North Dakota. I think in a lot of ways, that national, international attention that, that we received, carbon neutral goal 2030 might even be more significant because of all of these side discussions regarding how can we be better citizens when it comes to our environment. I'm teeing it up for this reason. When you, in the Clean Sustainable Energy Authority, when you have projects and people come to you, do they talk about the carbon neutral goal, 2030, and are many of the projects directly connected to something like that goal. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the bigger the company, they have their own goals. You know, so this is something where we knew with the ESG pressure that they have their own goals. And but we had to be we had to be viewed as a safe place to come and have this conversation. We couldn't be we couldn't let those that don't believe in us brand us as the place that doesn't that's deniers of this, that's gonna fight this, you know, and so so it has to be a safe place to come and have that conversation. And so the you know the, the oil companies come in with with their own. They they talk about ESG of why they're doing this. You know we we have a responsibility to our shareholders, and so we're looking at reducing our carbon footprint. And then the ethanol plants they want to reduce their carbon footprint and and you know take the CO take the man-made CO two out of the air, but also um, realize more dollars per gallon of selling their ethanol. So they feel like it's a really good economic reason to come in and. And have this conversation and saying, "Hey, you know, it helps you towards your goal." So it, it yes, it absolutely ties together. It, it it leads us from being just business friendly to being business friendly 
and we're, we're in, let the governor's mantra of innovation over regulation just really ring true of this is going to be up to you of how we get to these, this 2030 aspirational goal. And, and we're not, you know, we're saying things like a, a carbon capture project that actually uses the, the CO2 out in the, in the Bowman area that Denbury is involved in, bringing CO2 from somewhere else, but putting it in the ground, creating a carbon negative barrel of oil that, you know, we're, we're going to include that in our carbon neutrality because it's happening here because we have, we have, the, we have the, geog the geology and we have the primacy over CO2 regulation because of the work that we've done over the years. And so, you know, th this is something that it, it all plays together. You know, the work that's been done on the CO2 primacy has been a decade in the making or more, you know, and so now we have it. So, and we have the geology. So if you're going to capture your CO2 in Iowa and South Dakota, at these ethanol plants, you have to bring it somewhere that you can actually inject it in the ground and it'll stay in underground formation and not inject it in bedrock like they would have to in the eastern part of the state. It has to come to the west. And, um, you know, so we have these strengths. It's a way to have the dialogue and, and you're all on the same page for goals. Mm -hmm. Before I leave that subject, um, I, I, I agree with everything you just said, and I do believe the that putting that stake in the ground, declaring carbon neutral by 2030, very, very significant. I have a person that contacted me that's the CEO of an engineering firm uh, based in London. He's uh, a graduate of NDSU engineering program. He happened to listen to my podcast conversation with James Lamont. And James talked about some of the very things that you were just talking about in terms of the energy space projects and the carbon neutral goal 2030 and what North Dakota is doing. And you know, James, he, he's, you, you don't get much more lit up and excited than James, right? When he's an advocate for something, he's really something special. So the guy gets a hold of me. Uh, he went to NDSU, he grew up in this part of the country, he didn't know what North Dakota was up to. And the reason I'm sharing that with you is his, the parent company of his firm is one of the largest engineering firms in the world. I mean, it's a monster. One of the things that he was tasked to do was look at the North America footprint, specifically the United States, and their expansion plans from the majority of their work, which is over in Europe and Asia. He had already been to Texas. And he called me to say, I need to know more. In fact, I just sent him a text this morning about the recent story regarding uh, the, the next session and the, 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 prop, the likely request for more funding for the Clean Sustainable Energy Authority and the great projects that were in front of you and your fellow uh, board members, authority members. As I sent him that, because he was, he was shocked. And he said, I've been to Texas. I think we have to look a lot closer at North Dakota. That's how important, I believe, what we're doing is on a far bigger scale. And I believe that as people find out, they go, oh, my goodness, look at what North Dakota is doing. So thanks, Lieutenant Governor. It's a big deal. It is. It's, it's fascinating when they find their way here and they look around and they listen and they meet the folks that are actually doing it. And, and what I always say is we take pride in the fact that we're actually doing something. We're not just talking about it.
and we actually have the research and now we have the, the, prim the EPA regulatory primacy to actually put the CO2 in the ground. Other places are just talking about having no CO2, but we, we can actually get it done here. And so it's a matter of, not, we're, at, we're at the point of, do the economics make sense? You know, we're on the, on the CO2 pipeline for the ethanol plants, it's can the landowners be convinced this makes sense to get this through? So it's very much like it was in the Bakken in the early days of pipeline fatigue and how that's a hard conversation. But the economics make sense on the ethanol side. Do the economics make sense on the coal plant side? And that's difficult. But the alternative is, is one of the CEOs said, well, it's either that or build a $5 billion small nuclear plant. You know, so I mean, maybe a billion and a half to retrofit a plant that's state-of-the-art that already functions completely perfectly but actually add carbon capture onto it and have a and have a way to to put that in the grid with that lower carbon and then and then flex back up if you need those electrons that on in, in on those days and turn off the carbon capture unit for just a few days when you need the extra power maybe that makes sense for our peaking problem maybe that makes sense for our co2 concern on man-made and and it's a lot cheaper than building a whole fleet of brand new small nuclear plants, which we don't have an easy conversation in the state of doing. So the next phase after the coal plants for generating power, I don't know what that is. And that gives me great concern in my daily in my daily walk in this job. And I don't have I don't worry about things and I don't have stress from the past or the future, but that's one where I just think I find it ironic and it's getting a little more scary than ironic that we don't have a solution for the end of life of these coal-generated power plants. And look what's happening in Germany right now. Luckily, they didn't make them knock those things down. They're, they're bringing 10-year-old plants that haven't been run for 10 years, except for keeping them running like maybe once a month, they'd fire them up. And they're bringing them fully back into production. We don't need to see that happen. Let's be better at this. Why not put carbon capture systems on all the plants and keep them going? Why Amen. not? That seems I couldn't agree sense. with you. The Empower uh, Conference or summer is coming out October 10. You have a pretty good uh, agenda. Why should people attend that? I think you get an idea of what's happening. It's not something where, you know, the Empower Commission minutes and conversations don't hit the news. And, and you know, that if you do find news about, about um, energy generation, it's going to be you might find some high level, you know, blasting away about ESG or else about renewables and, and bad things about coal. But to find that there's a middle ground and actual work being done in our state with biofuels, with our own soybeans, with our own corn, in our own state, with our own lignite coal, in our own state, with, with our prolific Bach and play. And, you know, Ron Ness's stated goal, cleanest barrel of oil anywhere. And we can get there. And then you, then if you pivot to, if you're just watching CNN or Fox News or the evening news about energy prices and inflation, and, and then you hear about, you know, why are energy prices so high? There's one reason. The investors don't feel comfortable investing more to produce more supply to bring the price down. And why is that? Well, we need to help from states like ours on, on how to actually get that comfort level there and actually have projects that make a dent in, in providing more, more, less lower emission energy, lower pollution energy, you know, less environmental um, degrading type of energy that we can do from here and get those prices back down worldwide. I mean, that's an important role. That's an, I think we have an important job from our standpoint. And so 
you know, to go to conferences like what Bismarck State puts on, it's, it's just another way of getting a real quick synopsis in a day from the folks that are in the industry doing, doing that work every day. And, and we're working towards that goal and that solution. I'm going to ask you a magic wand question if, based on what you just said. If, if you had a magic wand that you could wave over the heads of interested audiences, let me put it that way, when it comes to all the things that we've talked about in terms of North Dakota's assets, leadership's responsibilities, if you could wave it over the head, what's the one message you'd want people to know about North Dakota's role? in helping our country address these very important matters when it comes to our future? We have the answer here. We have, our country is moving towards a place where we have more unreliable power than we had the generation before, which is unfathomable, but we're doing that with bad policy. And so what is good policy? Good policy should, should actually be concentrating on balancing that grid with dispatchable power that's there every day and then if we're worried about the man-made CO2 emissions and particulate emissions, let's keep working on those. We've done a phenomenal job on the particulate. Let's keep working on that. Let's work on the CO2. But let's not give up our baseload, dispatchable, reliable power. And, and, and that's so important. And, and we have solutions right here of how to do that. But we also have solutions on the concerns we had when we took over, um, took office in 2017 of are all of our soybeans being exported around the world? No, we're actually going to utilize half of them in, in renewable diesel, which there's tremendous amount of, of ability to sell the renewable diesel from soybeans. And it's fungible with regular diesel. It's not like ethanol where you have to fight with the blending with, between the refiners and the ethanol industry. It's all, it's all fungible with petroleum diesel and, and renewable diesel from soybeans. It's a wonderful product produced right here good for our farmers, good for the refiners. Marathon Petroleum and ADM are the partners in that project in Jamestown. It's amazing. That's big oil and big egg. And these, these solutions are happening here, right here. And, but statewide, we need to be able to have people understanding that and, and realize that no, and be proud of that. We are, we are the solution here on feeding and fueling the world in a responsible manner and um, collaboration and, and, and doing it yourself, responsibility, um, you know, not, not over-governmenting everything, not having over-regulation on everything. There's, you know, oftentimes if you put one more regulation on, then that industry leaves. Maybe, maybe the way is ask them, you know, have a third-party view of are they doing what they say they're going to do? Is this the best way forward? Yes. That's my question all the time on Clean Sustainable. Is this the way forward? Is this the new way we're going to do this? Is this the way forward past 2030? And if, if those experts say, yes, it looks like it is, you know, then okay, we're getting somewhere, mm. you know. But we've got those solutions that are budding right out of North Dakota, and we should be proud of that. Couldn't agree with you more, Lieutenant Governor. What else should we know about you before we wrap it up? We've been talking a long time. It's longer than I usually go, Mike. <laughs> Any more questions? <laughs> so, I, I'm going to share something publicly about you. I, I placed a call to Lieutenant Governor at the time um, he was the mayor and of, of Watford City. We had met maybe once or twice, didn't really know each other. Oldest daughter had moved to Denver and was really struggling to 
uh, f- find a, a career opportunity for herself. She was one of those kids just, she saved enough money and said, I'm going to Denver, and she's never looked back, by the way. I called Lieutenant Governor Sanford, because I knew he had been in Denver, and shared with him that uh, our, uh, her, her background. I knew some people in Denver, primarily because of my work with the previous employer. I knew just about every oil company executive in the Denver metro area, and made some contacts for her. And I asked for your help. And you didn't take a, a, a moment to think about how to do that. You gave me the names of two people and their phone numbers. But never had met my daughter, barely knew me. And from that day forward, I have always said to myself, here's a person that I'm assuming his priorities are probably in this order, faith, family, everything comes after that, whether it's work or community, whatever. And at this great heart, you, you helped me help my daughter, and I'll never, ever forget that, Lieutenant Governor, because you're just one of these people of great character, and I think you're just a special guy. Thank you, Mike. Yeah, Likewise, thank you. Oh. an important thing, trying to get people's word out. You know, I mean, it's it's a, we need to do a better job of that in North Dakota. You don't know how many of these people visit, and they say, we had no idea. No, but there's only 800,000 of us. You know, it's like a small suburb of, of a lot of these different metro areas. And, and we, we have a lot of important things going on. And we tend to just look down and kick the dirt and aw shucks. And we're going to keep working hard. You know, we come from that pioneer mindset. But we need to we need to explain what's happening here. It's very, I think it's very important to bring us together as community, as country, as world, and, and have solutions for what this, you know, the... the the fear of climate change, the fear of the politics that, you know, there's a better way of doing all of this and we can provide a lot of solution from right here. Couldn't agree with you more. Lieutenant Governor Brent Sanford, thank you so much for taking time for your busy schedule to join me today. Appreciate what you do and God bless you in your work. Have a great day. You too, thank you.